Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I pray that as we have just sung about those words, that our hearts may be ready to engage with the Lord. A Lord who is mighty, a Lord who is powerful, a Lord who is holy. Do any of you have in your families, perhaps in your extended family, uh, a member or more who you would characterize as weird, as awkward? It was after being engaged in the American culture for quite a few years that I discovered an idiom that American culture has, and that is the idiom of the weird uncle, that somehow every family has a weird uncle. Now, I'm not sure why it's an uncle and not an aunt uh, or not a cousin. Uh, you don't have to have a weird uncle necessarily. Sometimes it may be just a, 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 perhaps a grandparent or someone else, a cousin or a distant, some, some other distant relative, but he's or she is weird. And if you were to be found by your friends, uh, in the same area where this other weird member of your family is, you feel like you would have to explain yourself a little bit. You would have to be apologetic uh, to tell them that not the rest of the family is not that way. Have you ha do you have those kind of people in your family that you feel awkward about, especially if you have to meet with other people? You, you feel like you have to give excuses and explanations. Well, friends, when we come to the doctrine of God, there's one facet about the doctrine of God that to many Christians, it feels like the weird uncle kind of doctrine. And that doctrine is a doctrine of the wrath of God. You feel like you could embrace it and you understand it, but if every, anyone else gets to see or hear about it, you feel somehow that you have to give explanations and feel sorry and feel like you have to really give some apologetic and, and say like, well, God is not all that way. He's, he's these other ways too. And oftentimes, the doctrine of the wrath of God, it feels even to many Christians as the, as the weird uncle doctrine. But the Bible is neither apologetic, nor embarrassed, nor unclear about this aspect of the, of, the, of the doctrine of God that is called the wrath of God. And there are several aspects about the wrath of God. One of the aspects is the eternal wrath. But there's another aspect about the wrath of God that manifests in temporal judgments. These are limited in time, and this morning we are going to look at this second aspect of the, of the wrath of God, a limited time experience of the wrath of God manifested through the last seven judgments that will come upon the earth. So this passage that we're going to be looking at in Revelation 15 and next week in chapter 16, it will feel like uh, experiencing and hanging uh, with the, the weird uncle kind of doctrine. But here's my aim and hope this morning is that this passage that we're looking at will help us see how unweird this is, how actually how glorious, how beautiful this doctrine is. 
Help us to be more comfortable and appreciate even this aspect that we don't feel often um, very comfortable with. So I encourage you to open God's Word to Revelation chapter 15. We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 8. And if you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 1036. And if you're visiting and if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab that Bible and take it home to be yours. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, We are reading from the ESV translation. And here is God's word for us this morning. The word of the Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Lord God, we thank you for revealing your word to us. We thank you for revealing your plans that you have with the earth. We pray that you would open our hearts. We pray that you would give eyesight to those who do not have eyesight. We pray that you would give hearing to those who do not have hearing. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that draws us to you, in a way that we would see your glory and majesty, even through your judgments. We pray all this for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We have just read chapter 15 this morning um, from a passage that really connects and is integral to the next chapter as well, to chapter 16. Chapter 16 uh, will describe in detail the plagues, the, the final judgments that God has, has decreed to bring upon the earth. Lord willing, next Sunday, um, we will work through those descriptions. But the text that we read this morning and we chose to just read chapter 15 helps us to prepare for the descriptions that we will encounter next week in chapter 16. This entire chapter, in this entire chapter 15, aims to prepare us to understand the final judgments of God. Because we often don't. We often approach it with, with hearts that 
don't think clearly or well about these judgments. We, we approach it with the attitude of, of either embarrassment or uh, with an attitude of puzzlement or, or with the attitude of rejection um, or in some cases with an attitude of, I don't need to hear about it because I'm not going to be here for that. Uh, and yet the Lord uh, reveals that these judgments are going to come upon the earth and they're going to come when his people are still going to be upon the earth. Um, this morning, as we prepare to hear and think uh, about these judgments, my hope and prayer is that the Lord would calibrate our hearts how to think about the judgments of God. That's my, that's my prayer, that the Lord, through this passage, would calibrate our hearts how to think about the judgments of God. If you like taking notes, um, we will look at four points about the judgments of God from this chapter. And uh, these four points are the following. God's judgments will be complete and completed. Um, God's judgments will be complete and completed. Uh, second, God's judgments evoke praise. God's judgments evoke praise. Uh, third, God's judgments come from his temple, the place of his worship. God's judgments come from his temple. And fourth, finally, God's judgments are glorious. God's judgments are glorious. Here's, uh, here's how this passage begins. And the first point we will see is God's judgments w are complete and will be completed. Look at how the chapter begins in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, did you notice how this uh, verse 1 <coughs> um, closes? It, it has this phrase, for with them the wrath of God is finished. What does it mean that the wrath of God is finished? Well, it does not mean that the wrath of God will be exhausted with these final seven plagues. It's important to notice that the wrath of God introduced in this chapter, in, in chapter 15, verse 1, is not the eternal wrath of God that was described in the previous chapter, in chapter 14. Uh, if, if you just look there to chapter 14, verse 10, it should be on the same page in your Bibles. Um, chapter 14, verse 10, we were told about the wrath of God that will be poured out upon the worshipers of the beast and that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And in verse 11, we read that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. In other words, chapter 14 spoke about an aspect of the wrath of God that is the eternal wrath of God. The wrath of God that will never, never be exhausted. But here in chapter 15, we get to read about another aspect about the, of the wrath of God. It's the, it's the judgments that will be poured upon the earth before the second coming of Christ, leading up to the second coming of Christ. So to say that the seven judgments uh, that, uh, of, of God's wrath will be finished does not mean that all the manifestations of God's wrath will be exhausted. Instead, the word for finished can be translated as completed. So the emphasis of verse 1 is not to tell us that God's judgments will stop, but rather that they will be completed. And the notion that God's judgments will be finished shows up again in the last verse of this chapter, in verse 8. Look, look to verse 8. 
And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, when we read the Bible, it's a good practice to look for words that are repeated. And when you see repetition of words, it's likely that the author is trying to bring an emphasis. That's what we have here in, in chapter 15. The beginning and the end focus on the fact that the wrath of God will be complete and completed. What this means is that they will not fail. They will not stop short before they will be fully carried out as God designed them. Now, some people don't respond well to the message that God's judging, uh, judgment is coming upon the world. To many, such a picture of God may lead us to, uh, to turn away from God. They assume that a God willing to judge and bring destruction upon the earth is not worth following, they might say. But friends, their impression uh, about God's worthiness to be worshipped and followed does not change a bit the fact that God will bring his judgments to completion. We cannot escape them. And if we ignore them, we will ignore them only to our peril. And there are even Christians who, would, uh, who, who rather don't feel comfortable at all about, about talking uh, to non-Christians about the judgment of God. They feel that the message of God's coming judgment and wrath should, should not be talked about with non-believers because Again, the fear is that it will turn people off. It will turn them away from following God. They want to talk exclusively about God's grace and love. It's true that God's grace and love abound. That we can, we can never fully talk about God's grace and His love. But, and it's also understandable that some Christians may want to speak about God in a very winsome way. But friends, we also have to understand that our human hearts and nature do not respond well to correction and warning. But our human hearts and nature does not respond well to anything that God says. Not just his wrath, but his love. In our human ability, none of us can actually make the gospel more winsome. We must understand that it is, we, we don't have the right to, to think and consider what we leave out of the gospel in order that someone may believe it. No part of the gospel can be believed and understood in the power of the human heart. And therefore, we must trust that God can use the message that he has entrusted to us in its fullness to communicate it and to include the part of the coming judgment of God even when we speak to non-believers. Actually, it is when we help them understand the coming judgment of God that the gospel of His grace appears even more sweet. Friends, I want to encourage you, do not be embarrassed to talk about the coming judgments of God. And even if people don't respond well to, to, to the, the warnings of the coming judgment, it does not change the fact that God gives us these judgments and these warnings in Scripture for our benefit the largest part of the book of Revelation is the announcement that God is bringing his kingdom on earth through both salvation but also through judgment. God has already brought his kingdom on earth through salvation by sending Jesus to be the one who would take upon himself the wrath of God so that anyone who turns away from their rebellion and sin 
Anyone who turns away from wanting to live a life of independence from God, a life of self-rule, anyone who turns away from these realities, these ways of life, and in, instead turns and trusts in Christ, in His death and resurrection, can be forgiven of their sins and be granted eternal life. But sadly, many people, especially in our own day, continue to live a life of self-rule, of rejecting God's word, of rejecting God's salvation. They continue to ignore God and think that they, all they need in this life is to live a good life here on this earth. But for those who think that this earth is a safe haven for our happiness, that it's a safe haven for our self-rule, for any of that, any of them who think this way, the warnings of these judgments are especially important. God is bringing his kingdom on earth, not only through salvation, but through judgment. Think about that. God is bringing his kingdom on earth, not merely through the message of salvation through Jesus, but also through the message of his coming judgments. In Revelation, we see that judgments of God are are divided up in three sets of seven judgments, compiling together 21 judgments. These three sets of seven judgments have been interrupted by interludes that explain to us why God is bringing his judgments upon the earth. And the last interlude, which we finished last week in chapter 14, the last interlude that started in chapter 12 and went all the way to chapter 14, revealed to us the unholy trinity, which has one primary aim, and that is to turn people away from the worship of the true God. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet present themselves as powerful forces and give the appearance on the earth that they are in control of everything. It's against this background that God is bringing his kingdom on earth, not merely through salvation, but through judgment. God is judging the control of the beast and of the dragon and of the false prophet, and God is judging the worship of the earth who is following the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. And God's judgments show that his power is greater than the control of the unholy trinity upon the earth that the unholy trinity is not able to protect the earth against God's power and wrath. Chapters 12 and 14 show us that the earth has sided with the unholy trinity. The earth has followed the way of idolatry, of worshiping something other than the true God, and God will not overlook the rebellion of the earth. God's judgments in these last set of seven judgments are meant to show the people of the earth that their idols, whether it's their resources, their self-security, their self-rule, cannot oppose God's power in judging the earth. The desire for wealth, the desire for pleasure, the desire for security, the desire for health, the desire for happiness cannot stand God's power to destroy the idols and the false gods that reign to seek over our lives. Friends, God's judgments against the earth will be completed. That's point one. 
Point two is that God's judgments evoke praise. Look at verses two to four. After being introduced to God's judgments in verse one, we would expect to hear about them immediately in verses two and following, but we don't. Instead, in verses two and through four, John sees those who have conquered the beasts and the dragon and the false prophet, Uh, those who have conquered the image of the beast and its name and number, and he hears them singing, and singing a song of praise. And we see that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This picture reminds us of the story of the, of the Exodus. When the people of God finished crossing the Red Sea, and they stood by the sea and praised God for the supernatural rescue against Pharaoh and his armies. And here John sees the people of God, conquerors, standing by another sea. Not the Red Sea of Exodus, but by the sea that looked like glass, and it was a sea mingled with fire. Uh, This sea of glass appeared before in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 where God's throne was described as surrounded by the sea of glass like a crystal. Now the conquerors are standing by the sea suggesting that they have crossed the sea that separates God's throne from the rest of creation. These conquerors have made it on the other side by the sea. And the sea is also presented as mixed with fire. And this perhaps suggests that the the crossing of the sea that separated God's throne from the rest of creation was mixed with trials and tribulations. It was not a smooth crossing. Nevertheless, they made it on the other side. And here's a picture of them finishing their journey. And they are now described as conquerors. They conquered not merely the flames. Actually, they, they we're not told that they conquered the flames. They conquered an even greater enemy, the beast, its image, and its name. Earlier in chapter 13, we were told that the beast was given power and authority even to kill the people of God. Yet now in chapter 15, John sees the people of God as conquering the beast. And notice what is involved in conquering this beast. They conquered the image of the beast, and the name of the beast. The image of the beast was the enticement into idolatry. Having the name of the beast on their foreheads or their hands represented thinking or a way of life that identified the people with the beast. This allowed the people of the world to get the benefits that the beast has offered them. Yet the conquerors overcome both the beast and the idolatry and the association with the beast through thinking and a way of life. So they conquer. They have not been stained. They have not sided with the beast in this conflict. And they are singing a song. And the song is described as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now we may not be surprised to hear that they're singing a song of the Lamb. But what is the thing about the song of Moses? Why is that significant here in the book of Revelation? Well, you'll see in the book of Revelation, particularly these last seven judgments that we're about to see are presented in ways that are very similar 
through God's judgment of Pharaoh and of Babylon and of, of Egypt. In other words, the, the, the final rescue that God will enact at the end of this age looks very similar in language and pattern to the judgments that God has already done at the time of the Exodus. God will judge the idols and the false gods of the earth just as he has done it before against Pharaoh and Egypt. The difference in Revelation is that God's judgments will be on a worldwide scale and it will be against the beast and its kingdom. Friends, this means that the judgments of God upon the earth are not aimed simply to destroy the earth out of whimsical desire on God's part. It shows that God is destroying the earth because he wants to destroy the idols and the false gods that have provided so much promise of security and showing that no, none of the things that provide or, or promise security and control over the earth, they cannot withstand the power of God to overcome them and an, an unneutral earth. In these verses, the earth is not presented as somehow being on neutral grounds with God. In, in these chapters, the earth has already sided with the beast. And God is showing that he will bring an earth that has been reigned and ruled by the beast. He will bring it to destruction. Friends, God's judgments in these verses are aimed to humble us and to show us that no matter what else we may follow in the place of God, it will, be not, it will not be sufficient in the end. The conquerors are glad to hear this, and they praise God for the judgments that he brings upon the earth. I wonder, do you praise God when you hear that he is going to crash the idols of the earth? Do you ever praise God about the idea, the notion, the, the thought, the promise, the warning that God will crash the idols of your life? I don't know when, what was the last experience that you have had when God crashed the idol, an idol in your life. I can tell you a few that I've had, and they were never pleasant. They were never pleasant. They were painful. Imagine, imagine that kind of pain multiplied at a whole worldwide scale when God will crash the idols of this world just as he crashed the idols of Egypt. But notice the lyrics of their song. In verses 3 and 4, here's what they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The conquerors praise God through song. And they praise him for his deeds, first of all. They declare that God's deeds are great and amazing. Friends, I wonder if you can sing about God's great deeds as being great and amazing. Can your soul sing in praise to God for who God is and what he has done? Or is it hard for you to think about what exactly would I sing about if I were to think about God's great deeds and praises is there something that your mind can go to quickly and right away? Notice they also declare that God's ways are just and true. 
in verse, we see that in verse 2. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. I'm sorry, in verse 3. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? These words come from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7, the, the passage that Taylor read earlier for us. Who would not fear you, O Lord, King of the nations? Jeremiah spoke those words in a context in which he compares how the nations have been following the lifeless idols. Yet Jeremiah declares that God is a true God, that God is a true God of the nations, even though the nations have been following a false uh, God, false idols. Jeremiah declares that God has power even over them. Friend, is there anything in your life right now in which you think that your ways are better than God's ways? Friends, is there something that you are comparing God to? Is there an experience or an ideal, a dream that you are placing on the same pedestal or even higher as God himself? Now, I know that, that most of us uh, who follow Christ know with our minds that we should not place anything above God, but, but how often our heart fails us and our hearts attach themselves to something other than God and we find meaning, significance, worth, identity in something else other than the one true God. These conquerors praise God that he is over the nations even though the nations are following idols that God is greater even than them. And these conquerors are also aware and, and they realize that, that God's greatness and God's worship will be evoked when people realize the holiness of God. Notice in verse 3, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. It's amazing how these worshipers connect the worship of God, glorifying God, fearing Him, with a sense and the knowledge and the truth that God is holy. If you want to grow in your worship of God, meditate on His holiness. When you meditate on God's holiness, it produces in us an awe-filled fear and worship of God. And then notice how these songs, uh, how the song closes in verse three: "All nations, um, all nations." I'm sorry, in verse four: "All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." In other words, by revealing God's righteous acts, it causes the world. People from every tribe, language, nation, and peoples to become worshipers of God. If chapter 13 closed with a picture that the entire earth was following the beast and was worshiping the beast, these conquerors sing a different reality. That there's a higher king, that there's a true king of the nations, and that king is not the beast, is not the dragon, is not the false prophet, but is the one true God the one who created all things. He is truly the king of the nations, and the nations will come and worship the Lord. The worship of God will not fail. It will not stop short. That's why we commit to, to support the, the work of missions among the nations of the earth. That's why I'm so glad to partner with, with churches like UCCD in the Middle East who commit to train pastors who will continue to proclaim the gospel faithfully and raise up churches that are faithful because 
the nations of the earth must hear about God's righteous acts. That's why we support missions and, and support our members to go on mission trips so that the nations of the earth might hear about God's righteous acts because when they are declared, people will worship the Lord. So let me ask you, do you praise God for his judgments? These conquerors are praising God, are bringing the song of praise because they, reveal, uh, because they reveal the judgments that God is about to bring and they are responding with praise. The judgments of God reveal God's power. They reveal God's authority. They reveal God's worthiness. They reveal God's truthfulness. The song of praise is inserted here before the last judgments are described to show us the right attitude with which we ought to approach God and his judgments. It's an attitude of praise. Do you praise God for his judgments? Do you come find comfort in the fact that God will judge the idolatries and the rebellion of the worth? And when you compare your ways with this earth and with the ways of God, which ones do you find to be more true and just? Is it the ways of this earth or the ways of God? Friends, the things we boast in, the things we boast about, reveal what we esteem and think highly of. These conquerors are boasting about God's greatness, not only in salvation, but also in his judgments. A third point that we see in this passage is that God's judgments come from his temple. In verse 5, John sees for the second time in this book a picture of the opening of the heavenly temple. Look at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. He saw a similar picture of the opening of the temple in heaven in chapter 11, verse 19 after the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Uh, he, here, John sees again this opening of the temple, but this time he sees not the, the, this, the Ark of the Covenant as it was in 1119, but he sees the tent of witness or the tent of testimony. Now, when these two openings of the temple in heaven are, appear in these passages, it suggests that actually these passages are supposed to be considered and studied together. The first opening in chapter 11, verse 19, appeared at the close of, this la of the last of the seven trumpet judgments. Here, in chapter 15, we see that the trumpet judgments in some way are, are brought back and connected with the next set of judgments that we will see through the judgments of the bulls. In the book of Revelation, the 21 judgments, made of three sets of seven judgments, are interlocked. It, it, when, when the last seal is presented, then the, the very next thing we're told is that the new set of judgments are beginning. When the, when the last of the seven trumpet judgments are presented, in, verse, in, in 11, 19, and then here in chapter 15, verse 5, we see that it also connects the next seven judgments, so that these 21 judgments are supposed to be read together. They make one broad 
structure that keeps the book of Revelation together. So that if John sees for the second time the temple in heaven opened, and the first opening he sees the Ark of the Covenant, in the second he sees a tent of witness, we wonder why are these things brought here in the book of Revelation? What is the significance that the tent of testimony now is being brought here as a description of the temple in heaven? We know that in the Old Testament, the tent of testimony was one of the ways that was used to describe the tabernacle of God, the tent that God used to dwell among his people before the tent was built, before the temple was built. The reason why the, the tent tabernacle is called the, the tent of testimony or the tent of witness is because it housed the Ark of the Covenant. That's why we see Revelation eleven nineteen, the Ark of the Covenant, coupled together with the tent of witness in chapter 15, verse 5. But, but the reason why it's still called the tent of testimony or the tent of witness is because the Ark of the Covenant housed the tablets of stone on which God wrote his commandments. And God described the tablets that he gave Moses as the testimony. The tablets were test the testimony of God for his covenant with his people. And there's a few places in the Old Testament where the, the tablets are simply called the testimony. Exodus 25, 21 is just one of the several references. In other words, God describes his commandments, his word, as his testimony. Because they were a testimony to his covenant with his people. God's word is not just mere information. It's a binding revelation. It binds us to God, and it binds God to us. The first two of the Ten Commandments, the first two of the, of the commandments, which were the testimony, you remember what they were? They both spoke a prohibition against idolatry, against the worship of any other gods. Well, by this time in the book of Revelation, we have seen that the whole earth is indicted with idolatry. The entire world has broken God's commands. Also in the earlier interlude in chapter 11, God's revelation was described through the ministry of the two witnesses who brought their testimony through uh, to the whole earth. But the people of the earth rejected the testimony of the two witnesses. So because the world is rejecting the testimony that God has given, because the world has broken the commandments of God as God's testimony, now... God is bringing his judgments against the earth from his temple. And now God describes the temple as the place of his testimony, as a tent of his witness. Friends, God's revelation in this book is presented as a testimony to assure to us that what he reveals is true and certain and factual. If we receive God's word as his testimony, it means that God wants to bind us to himself. But if we ignore and reject his revelation, that revelation stands as a testimony against us. Friends, the seven angels coming out of the heavenly temple are, are dressed also in priestly-looking garments. 
In verse 6, we read that out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. In the Old Testament, similar attire was used to describe the priests who guided the corporate worship. It's interesting that the angelic beings who carry out the judgments of God are described here not in attire of soldiers getting ready for a fight. They are described in the attire of priests. And they're coming out of the temple in heaven, the temple associated with the testimony of God. They're coming out of that place where the true worship of God was, was unhindered and, and uninterrupted. But on earth, that worship has been compromised. And they're coming out and they're, they're given bowls. The bowls were often used in the Old Testament as the, as the utensils to facilitate and, and be used in the worship of God. But this time, the, the bowls are used not for the worship of God. They're used to bring the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God against the worshipers who have turned away from worshiping the true God and have turned instead to worship the beast. These details suggest that the judgments of God come on the, or on the world, on the earth, because the world is indicted for turning away from the worship of the true God. They have turned away from receiving God's word as his testimony. They have turned away from worshiping God as the one true God. And therefore, God is using the temple agents and the temple utensils and the temple testimony to say, you are indicted. You have turned away from worshiping true God. And because the world has turned away from the worship of God, God's judgments are carried, through, carried out through this heavenly setting of worship. And that's why the judgments are coming from the heavenly temple. The last point we see in this passage is that God's judgments are glorious. Not only are these judgments coming from the heavenly temple, not only are they coming from a place of worship, just think about that. God's judgments have been coming out from a place of worship. But God's judgments are glorious. In verse 8, this scene of the heavenly temple closes with an interesting description. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. In other words, the sanctuary in heaven from which the seven angels came was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And it was so intense the, the picture of God's glory and power was so intense in the temple that no one was allowed to enter that sanctuary until these plagues, until these judgments were completed. Friends, on one side, this shows the significance of these last seven bowls of the wrath of God. If no one in heaven can enter the heavenly sanctuary because of the intensity of the glory of God in these judgments, then what does it say about us when we remain unmoved? disinterested, or worse, antagonistic towards the glorious judgments of God? What does it say about Christians who feel embarrassed 
to talk about the judgments of God when such judgments bring about such glory in the heavenly temple that no one can enter it. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, if we are embarrassed to think or talk about the coming judgments of God, I'm afraid that we are embarrassed to talk about that which fills the heavenly sanctuary with such incredible glory. And I want to plead with you to think about the reality of the glory of God in His judgments in the temple. I want to plead with you to think about that for your own life, for your own journey, for your own walk with the Lord. Let us learn to see the goodness of God in his judgments. Whether he brings those judgments in small measures in our own lives, when he trashes and crashes our idols, as painful as that may be, think about those moments. And, and remember, when God is cra crashing the idols of this earth, the temple in, in heaven is filled with his glory. Rejoice in that. Yes, you may be sad that your idols are no longer there. You can no longer worship them. But praise God that he's stopping you from that false worship now while there's still time to turn away and he's not letting you worship them until it's too late when it's all too late to turn to the worship of the true God. Friends, when God trashes and crashes our idols, he does it so that we may turn and worship the one true God, and worship Him exclusively. See the goodness of God. See the glory of God in His judgments. And if God is doing that in, in small measures in our life, rejoice. But also, rejoice and praise God for the warning that He gives us that His judgments will come against the entire earth. And friends, if that's the case, then watch out for what you look towards this earth for. If you look to it for the idols, for the, for the things that bring you the security, the peace, and the joy, if you look to them as, as being the source of what your soul needs to feed on to be satisfied, let this message warn your heart. God will bring his judgments against the earth. Rejoice. Praise God. He is trying to purify our worship here and now so that we might be among the conquerors who will be on the other side of the sea singing with them and joining in the heavenly chorus and praising God and saying that his judgments are true and just. Oh, friends, God's judgments will be completed. Rejoice in that. God's judgments evoke praise. Rejoice in that. Join in that praise. God's judgments are coming from his temple. Praise God for bringing his judgments from the very place of worship. And God's judgments are glorious. I pray that God would humble our hearts to see the glory of God even in his judgments and that we would welcome God's discipline and God's correction here and now to make us fit to be worshipers of God exclusively and fully adoring him for all that he has done, including his judgments. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, 
We praise your name, for you are holy. Your judgments are holy. Your judgments are right. Your judgments are true. Oh, Lord, we pray and ask that you would humble us. Humble us to see your ways, your righteous deeds, your judgments, as you reveal them to us. And even if our hearts, even if our nature, our human nature may not be willing to see them as such, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us see your glory and majesty. Help us see your greatness so that we may align our ways with your ways. We pray all this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen.